welcome to the 44th episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. It's our first show of 2019, so we thought we'd open the year with a bang of sorts. Today is the beginning of the 2019 session of the Virginia General Assembly, and what better way to kick it off than by having 9th District State Senator Jennifer McClellan come hang out with us. Hi, Jen. How are you Hi, doing? Hi. Thank hey. you guys for having me. For coming. Thank you so much for being here. Especially after your crazy tour for the last few days, really, of getting ready for session. Yes. Yeah. It's been a whirlwind, but I'm ready. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> For some of our listeners who might not be familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your district? Sure. So I was elected to represent the 9th District in 2017 uh, in a special um, two years ago tomorrow. Um, and the 9th is sort of the northeastern quadrant of the city, eastern Henrico, all of Charles City County, and the town of Ashland. Prior to that, I served in the House of Delegates for 11 years, representing the 71st district, which was northeast city, one little piece of eastern Henrico. Beyond that, I'm a lawyer, I'm a mom, wife, nerd, (laughs) (laughs) history buff. Um, I just really enjoy representing people, helping solve their problems, and still believe that government is a powerful force for change and helping people and um, just don't pay attention to Washington right now. (laughs) What committees have you been serving on during your time in the General Assembly to get people an idea of what parts of policy have you been mostly working with? Sure, when I was in the House, I was on the Education Committee, Commerce and Labor, and Courts of Justice. And so most of what I have been working on until I got to the Senate and still now is education policy, criminal justice reform. I have sort of this niche of bills sort of modernizing Virginia's laws to reflect new business models. So like benefit corporations, if you've heard of those, I had the bill that allowed them to exist. A bill to allow contract brewing, which I have been told is one of the reasons why the craft brewery industry in Virginia has exploded. So it's ironic because I'd don't drink a whole lot of beer. but <laughs> <laughs> Now in the Senate, I, because I came in in a special, I have all different committee assignments. So now I'm on local government committee, agriculture, conservation, natural resources, and um, transportation. So I do some bills on in those areas, but the beauty of being one of 40 is you kind of can continue to focus on the issues that you want to. And so I still do a lot in the education and criminal justice space. Do you think, I know this year is the first year that there was a limit on the bills Mm. that you guys could submit. Is that limiting any of your ability, you feel like, to be able to advocate for all the places that you like to fit policy? Yes, Um, particularly because the bill limits came halfway through the drafting process. We could start requesting bill drafts in July, and um, I probably had about 40 drafts done of things that were either my idea or things that people had brought to me. Um, And so when we got the bill limits, we can only do 25. I really had to go through, and that's why they're not all filed yet, because I'm still, you know, I had until nine o'clock this morning to, to finish that process. But I really had to figure out, are any of these bills things that can be done without legislation? Are there things that are not quite ready? Maybe I can wait until next year or in some cases got other people to carry. So I don't like bill limits. 
But it does really challenge you to focus. It, it does. And that's kind of the point. And, and there, I was very um, careful. You know, a lot of times people will file multiple versions of the same bill just so they can say they did it. Um, and so it does force you to, if you think someone else is doing it or if it makes more sense for someone else to do it, mm-hmm. just let it go. And so I think that, that was that was probably a good process but it's also hard because you know late in the process I had people coming to me and asking me to put bills in or consider bills and I was already at my limit and I just I had to say no and and that's that's a hard thing to do. When should people start advocating uh, with General Assembly members then? Yeah that's a really good uh, (laughs) question. Very good question. (laughs) Uh, As soon as we adjourn one session I mean I already have a list of of bills I'm thinking about for 2020. You know when so we're a part-time legislature and we are less busy i won't say not busy but less busy mm-hmm. when we're out of session and so um usually we really start thinking about and vetting things in the spring usually around july 1st is when we can start requesting drafts and what i found is i really like if i'm going to do a bill i want to vet it with all of the potential stakeholders and know who's going to oppose it what are their arguments what are the unintended consequences before it's filed so if i if if i can have the summer or even the fall to do that, then I'm much more comfortable about filing a bill. And so like some of the ones I pa- I, I put off, I hadn't had time to go through that process. Uh, you've got a couple health-related bills you've put forth. Any chance that we're going to get the ultrasound bill reversed? Get out of my uterus. One can always hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I put these same bills in, there are a number of them, um, one would codify the Whole Women's Health Act, and as part of that would repeal the ultrasound bill. I put them all in last year. They all died in a committee. But, you know, you try, you try again. And I think part of it is just to show the momentum that we have. Um, the entire General Assembly is up for election in 2019. I'm very confident that Democrats will take the majority. And when we do, then I think we're going to see these bills pass. Yay. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, you're partnering with Delegate Jeff Bourne on a few things. Yes. Yeah. Um, one, I have is uh, to reduce disorderly conduct referrals of students to police. It's kind of crazy how quick we are to criminalize our kids. Yeah, it is. Um, I it it was it, sort of a unintended consequence of the reaction to Columbine. Really was was instead of trying to get at why did something like that happen, let's look at how to harden our school. And that's when we really started to see school resource officers put in schools. And and then to balance the budget, when the state started to cut um, K-12 education funding, um, we put a cap on support personnel. You know, we also changed the, the counselor ratio. So you have fewer counselors, fewer mental health professionals, people who could deal with behavioral issues, mental health issues. A lot of that got pushed on our teachers. And so what you start to see is, particularly with students of color, particularly with students with disabilities, sort of behaviors that used to be handled through the discipline process or sort of let's get them, let's figure out the underlying reason and address that. It's just, well, let's just get this kid out of school. So you saw a increase in the number of kids long-term suspended, expelled, or referred to law enforcement for, for literally things like kicking a trash can, you, you know, using a cell phone in class. And some of that's because of the broad definition of what disorderly conduct is, and not even broad, but just subjective. Very Mm -hmm. subjective. 
Yeah. The air of really the air in school of getting rid of the disruption. Yes. Kids now are seen as a disruption instead of, like you said, addressing what's actually going on. Yeah. With that child and why they came to school and acted out. Yeah. And, and, and all of that at the same time, there's been an increase in the number of kids who have been diagnosed with something, whether it's ADHD, sensory processing issues, um, autism. Um, so it's like this really unfortunate convergence of events that have just led us to, as you said, criminalized childhood. So Jeff and I are taking two different tacks. Um, my bill will eliminate the disorderly conduct charge for events that occur uh, during school, on school property or school sponsored event. I think anything you would want to charge, particularly an adult, or if it's actual criminal behavior, there's probably something else you can charge them with. Just taking the approach of let's eliminate that charge for students. And and we're sort of purposefully going two different routes because we're trying to see, you know, we got to bring the House and the Senate together on this. We have and bill limits also. Like, we have bill limits. See which way it goes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then another one uh, that you guys are kind of working on uh, together would be the reporting of lost or stolen firearms. Yes. Um, that one was one that Chief Durham requested at least two years in a row. And really what he saw was there were a number of crimes that occurred with guns that were lost or stolen. Once a gun is lost or stolen and is out of sort of a chain of, of custody, it's harder to track. Um, and so he, he requested those bills. I had a constituent, um, so I put it in last year, as did Jeff, both of them died, um, since then, I had a constituent whose son was murdered, and um, she thinks by a group of his students who, when she went into her, her son was a teacher, she went into his Instagram account and saw um, he had been following his students, and they were posting pictures of them with, like, all of these stolen guns, and, you know, um, there were sort of she thinks in this like stolen gun ring and she thinks one of those guns was used to kill her son. So she really felt that this was an important issue that, that even if it doesn't pass, we need to keep, keep trying. And, and, and so I agreed to put it in again. Now the governor has included it in a series of bills that that he is is backing to, to get at gun violence. Well, it seems like a pretty common sense one. Mm-hmm. Report your lost guns. You would think. You would think. I think it's interesting that it's going to take somebody really taking it on as a community member of coming in there to make it that much more relevant to this session for General Assembly members, though. Yeah. Also, though, don't gun control or gun violence bills have kind of an interesting uh, relationship with Martin Luther King Jr. Day? They do. MLK Day is always... A lot of groups do their advocacy day that day since it's a holiday, but the NRA, the Citizens Defense Gun, whatever they're called, that's their lobby day. And and so last year, all of the gun control bills were, were heard and killed in a, in a committee on that day because that's the day that all the ERA advocates were there. Great. Yeah. Splitting <laughs> all of our focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, on a day when you used to commemorate someone who was assassinated. With a gun. With a gun, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, so I know some other of the legislation that you've been talking about or, or spoke with about and been patroning is regarding new sentencing proceedings. Yes. If you could talk a little bit about what that is and just explain to people what that opportunity is for people possibly. Sure. So back in the 90s, Virginia abolished parole 
And the idea behind it was let's not just abolish parole, but let's do truth in sentencing. So what was happening in the parole system was if a jury wanted someone to serve, you know, 10 years for whatever crime, they would say, well, if we sentence them to 20 years, they'll be eligible for parole in 10. So let's give them a 20 year sentence because we want them to be in jail for 10 years. The idea behind truth in sentencing with the abolition of parole is just Char- you know, 10 years. Right. Here's the problem. When parole was abolished, juries won't, weren't told parole's not an option. So juries kept doing what they always did. And the Supreme Court, in a case called um, Fishback versus uh, Commonwealth of Virginia, ruled that juries should have been told and that it was a violation of the, of the Constitution not to tell them that, that parole is not an option. So, But there's still a number of people in prison who were sentenced in that gap between when we abolished parole and when this case came out. And so last year I had a bill that would have said all of them are eligible for new sentencing hearing. And the feedback I got was, well, you know, the witnesses from the trial are long dead. Yeah, you have a victim impact statement, but the victim's not there, so it won't be the same. And I said, okay, fine, then let's just make them eligible for for parole. And so that's what the bill does this year, and we'll, we'll see... I'm kind of calling their bluff. Like, okay, I've addressed what you said. You said you'd rather, and one Republican member actually said to me, he's like, I trust the parole board more than a new jury. And I'm like, all right, then give it to the parole board. That'll be interesting to follow through and see if that is still the excuse then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know it's associated with criminal justice reform. There's also some things around solitary confinement. Yes. We're hearing anecdotal evidence, um, and the ACLU has done a lot of work on this, about solitary confinement is really being abused and particularly used on inmates who have um, mental health issues ostensibly to keep them safe. But um, not surprisingly, even a 100% healthy person, if you isolate them for a certain amount of time, if they're going to have uh, negative consequences. So then you do that with someone who already has a mental health issue. It's just, it's just going to be a downward spiral. But we don't have any real data on how, that's all anecdotal. We don't have any hard data on how a solitary confinement is being used. And so um, there are a couple of bills, Patrick Hope in the House, Dave Marsden in the Senate, and I think I saw Rosalind Dance has one too, that would require the Department of Corrections to provide a report to the General Assembly and the Secretary of Public Safety every year sort of on their use of solitary confinement. How many people, for what, for how long, so that we can really see what, what, what are you doing? Well, it also seems because I know there's some movements, um, some of them being if uh, an inmate needs to go out for health care. And I believe solitary confinement might be one of the cases where their accounts kind of go dark for a period from the family members to where there's not a lot of communication instantly with the family member about what's going on. And so then people are having to spend their time and their concern and worry about, is my loved one alive? Yes. And that shouldn't be a concern. You should know if somebody's in solitary confinement. You should know if they're out. And I get leaving and going on a health location, like people might be concerned about some kind of construct. But like, if we're not reporting the data, there's a lot of services that are probably not getting through to people that need them on all sides of this. Right. Um, the other night at uh, RCDC, you mentioned carrying an omnibus tenant legislation. Yes. And um, I know a lot of our listeners are renters and would probably be very interested to know what the details are. Sure. So first, your your listeners are probably aware of the Eviction Lab report that came out. So um, Eviction Lab at Princeton University did a study that showed sort of listed the the large cities 
eviction rates. And Virginia had five of the top ten. Richmond was number two with an eviction rate of 11.44%, I think. Uh, if yeah. I remember, wasn't it Richmond Redevelopment Housing Authority that was one of the highest perpetrators of evictions in the state, or yes. at least in Richmond? Yes. I think that's right. Yeah. I think Which that's is... right. Now, they didn't really get at the reasons. And so over the summer, the Housing Commission, Secretary of the Virginia Poverty Law Center, and a number of people were sort of did stakeholder groups to try to figure out what are some of the reasons, or at least what are what are some of the provisions of Virginia law that if you had predatory landlords or just provisions that make it super easy to evict someone or make the eviction process very anti-tenant. The Housing Commission endorsed about three or four provisions. The Poverty Law Center went a little further. And so my bill is includes everything that was endorsed by the by the Housing Commission, plus a little bit more. First, it would extend a tenant's right of redemption to two days before the sheriff evicts you. So, so if you, whatever you owe, you have up until two days before the sheriff comes to, to pay it back. One of the issues we found is there are a lot of landlords that file multiple unlawful detainers. So once you miss your rent, a landlord can file an unlawful detainer. And then the next month when you're late, they can file another one, they file another one. You keep filing them, court costs add up, fees and all that kind of stuff. It makes it very hard for a tenant to pay everything. So the bill would limit landlords to filing only one lawful detainer at a time. And a judge would have to accept a valid termination notice as evidence before they would accept another one. And then, so (laughs) nothing requires landlords to have a written lease. Which, I mean, as a lawyer, I'm like, like, that's crazy. But um, yeah, yeah. so you can have someone who the landlord says, well, you violated your lease and they can't prove they didn't. This would require you to have a written lease. Now, those were all things the Housing Commission endorsed. So I think at a minimum, you're going to see that hopefully pass. The rest of the bill. So if you are current on your rent but not late fees, you can still be evicted. So this bill would say, if the only reason you're late is late fee, I mean, the only reason you're in default is late fees, you can't be evicted just for that. Um, It would require attorney's fees, provisions to be reciprocal. So not only would the tenant have to pay the landlord's attorney's fees, the landlord would have to pay the tenants if the tenant wins. And then the big one is right now, if you get a, a uh, pay or quit notice. So if you're about to be evicted, the landlord says pay your rent in five days or I'm kicking you out. Five days is pretty short. And so this bill would extend it to 14 days so that you should get another pay period between that. That is the omnibus landlord tenant bill. And then it's being broken into pieces in the house. So there are a number of different members carrying it in the house, including Jeff Bourne has a piece. Dele- Delegate McQuinn has a piece, but we decided to do one big bill in the, in the Senate. So another piece of evictions is probably affordable housing, and I think you might have some legislation that's going to address affordable housing issues. So I ended up doing, uh, yes, I, I have a couple. One, I tried a few years ago where one of the reasons it's hard to have a number of affordable units is there's, you know, there's NIMBYism. And I think the story I heard was in, you know, in Powhatan County, they had a, a development that was up before their planning commission. And, you know, somebody stood up and was like, and, and when you say affordable housing, I mean, that the definition of affordable housing really is you are not paying more than 30 percent of your average income um, mm-hmm. on your home. Someone stood up in this meeting was like, if this development goes through, like this is going to be the next Gilpin court. Uh. Right. <laughs> so it's like, uh, no. 
but I've heard that here because it's the next Chamberlain Avenue. Yeah. 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 You hear it all the time. So there's a lot of that. Like I just I don't people think public housing when they hear affordable housing they're like I don't want that here. So I had a bill a few years ago that would say localities cannot discriminate in applying their land use. Uh, ordinances or in approving or disapproving a project solely based on the fact that a certain number of the units will be reserved for affordable units. When I did that, I think it was 2010, like local governments lost their minds. Because anytime you do anything that like limits their power, they freak out. So it didn't pass. What I've seen now, though, is they're starting to say, hey, we actually want more affordable units, but the only people that show up at the planning commission are the ones that oppose it, and that's putting political pressure on our you know, planning commission members, and they don't know what to do. So, And because people that need affordable housing are probably at work at, work. at 3 p.m. <laughs> right, right. Like, <laughs> right. I've actually had some localities, and the Richmond realtors in particular, um, ask me to put that bill back in, so I'm, I'm doing that. And then Jeff is carrying a bill we both carried last year, uh, but I didn't have room, so the... The, you can't discriminate against someone solely based on their source of income. So if someone is paying their rent with a voucher, you can't deny them a lease. Um, so those are a couple of, of, of bills. So we can't have a political discussion without talking about race and education. <laughs> nope. Because nope. that, that's hand in hand. Let's kind of briefly talk about the emancipation statue on Browns Island and the resolution for the Commonwealth to express their profound regret (laughs) for racial terror lynchings. Yes. Both of those are projects of the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial Commission, which I chair, Mm -hmm. um, which is a legislative commission. And the monument, we actually got approval and, and partial funding for in the 2012 budget. And it's been a long process. But we, after two rounds of RFPs, we selected uh, the design of a, and, and you all tweeted it, um, or I guess I sent it to you. <laughs> we retweeted it. At least. Yeah. yeah um, the, the, the model of it, it's, it's, it's a depiction of a newly freed slave family and and when it'll go on Browns Island when you come across the Fifth Street pedestrian bridge there the figures are 12 feet um, and you'll see the man first and then the woman sort of evokes the image of the Statue of Liberty so so he's facing um, the city and she's facing the island it's a very powerful beautiful every time I see it I get chills image but we wanted to do more than just depict the moment of emancipation because it wasn't just one moment. There was a lot that led to the Emancipation Proclamation, the 13th Amendment, and and even when slaves were freed, and even with the 14th Amendment, there was a long struggle for equality, and we're we're not there. We decided that on one side of the base of the monument, we will depict five African-American Virginians who fought against slavery. Nat Turner, Gabriel, William Harvey Carney, Mary Elizabeth Bowser, and Dred Scott. On the other side will be five African-American Virginians who fought for equality and freedom post-Civil War to 1970 because we needed a cutoff. So that'll be Rosa Dixon Bowser and John Mitchell, both of whom lived in Jackson Ward. John Mercer Langston, who was the first African-American congressman from Virginia. Y.T. Walker, who was Martin Luther King's chief of staff. He was a civil rights 
uh, leader in Petersburg, and then Lucy Sims, who was a teacher in Harrisonburg who's taught three generations of African-American students. And so this monument is, and we, we purposefully selected people who have not been included in monuments or otherwise recognized. And so we're in the process of raising money for that. The artist is in his studio building life-size clay models. Um, once he's finished, he'll do a 3D printout, which is, like, I still can't believe I said that. <laughs> um, and then it'll hopefully be finished and unveiled uh, in December. So that's a monument. How can people donate to it? Huh? Yes. So if you go to, there are a couple of ways. Our website is super long, but if you just Google um, Virginia MLK Commission, or we have a Facebook, our Facebook page is VAMLK Commission. There are donate buttons there. We, we are raising money through the Virginia Capital Foundation because uh, they are a 501c3 and, and we're not as a state organization. And so, and we're taking, you know, we've gotten $5 donations. We've gotten 5,000 donations. Um, we need about 500,000 total to, to complete the project. Every year... The commission, you know, part of our mission is is not just to commemorate Dr. King, but to keep his his mission alive. And and part of that is looking at how history continues to affect public policy today and how how to achieve his vision of a beloved community. So we will periodically pick different topics and usually it's tied into an anniversary. So last year to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Dr. King's death, we did a series of community conversations in the localities he visited as part of our King in Virginia project. And we collected information on all of his visits and all of his connections to Virginia. And we did these roundtable discussions about where are we in achieving his vision and where do we go from here. So then we started thinking about what do we do for 2019? It's the 400th anniversary of the first recorded Africans coming to Jamestown. It's also Dr. King's 90th birthday. We are in the midst of a need for racial reconciliation like we've never been before. And we are in this weird space where people are hungry for racial reconciliation and yet nervous about talking about why we need it to begin with, but are more willing to talk about the good and the bad and the ugly of our history. I got a call from a woman from Culpeper who had been doing a lot of research on a lynching that occurred there that uh, this year was the 100th anniversary. And she had, she was like, you know, we need to have, like, we, I'd like to do a memorial resolution to this victim, but it's bigger than him. And, you know, the, the lynching memorial had just opened and the, the Equal Justice Initiative had identified, I think, 80 racial terror lynchings that had occurred in Virginia. There's a group out at James Madison that had identified 100. And we thought, we don't really know how many there are. Somebody should be compiling that information. And oh, by the way, you know, EJI is really working with local governments and local communities to get them to fully examine what happened. But is any state official government entity doing that. Isn't that something the King Commission should be doing? And so we decided to do a lynching in Virginia project where we will compile, this will be long-term, this is not just one year, we will compile information about every recorded lynching we can in Virginia in one central place, and we will do programming in those communities to talk about this happened 
what did that do to the community? Because whether it's Culpeper, Tazewell, Charlottesville, there are people still living who, in some cases, remember it, or it was a family member. Delegate Joanne Ward, when they were doing redistricting after the court case, um, there was a part of Hampton that was going to be put in her district. And her initial reaction was, there was a lynching there. And so you have a, a woman in 2018 who says, I don't know if I would feel comfortable going door to door in this in this portion of the city because there are people who still alive who remember that lynch. Now, the problem is just like any trauma, if you don't talk about it, yeah, if you don't acknowledge it happened. That's right. And you don't talk about it. You will never heal. And so what we're trying to do is say, look, it happened and we're sorry it happened. And yeah, the Commonwealth did pass an anti-lynching statute, but that's about it. Otherwise, government let it happen. And so we got to own that. And the, the, the victims and their families deserve to have their stories told. And it's going to be uncomfortable, but we have to do it. It's necessary. Yeah, it is necessary. This is State Senator Jennifer McClellan, and you are listening to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Kind of on the topic of the uh, the lynching memorial, I know that there's some obviously that are representative of the uh, lynchings that happened in Virginia. Are there conversations that are coming up now about how are we as Virginia tying into that national memorial? Yeah. So so the resolution will charge the commission with sort of coordinating with EJI to sort of help them have those conversations. You know, EJI has two projects. One is they have two versions of each individual memorial. One is supposed to go back to the locality where the where the lynching occurred. Mm-hmm. And so sort of helping them connect Virginia localities together and figure out, you know, how, how do we claim our monument? They also are doing a soil collection project and they want to do or facilitate uh, these community conversations in each of the localities. And so what, what we wanted to do was sort of, you know, help them do that because, you know, we've got 136 localities in Virginia and, a fa- you know, fair number of them had lynchings. You know, we want to just kind of be a resource for them and make sure that Virginia is owning its part in this ugly story. One step at a time. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Yeah. So education. <laughs> yeah. Um, This is something that obviously for Richmond City especially, I think that a lot of people are very passionate about. And we have a march in case anybody, everybody should go. Um, January 28th, there's a a Red for Ed march down to the state capitol. So important everybody come out and show up. But from a legislative perspective, what are the things and priorities that people can start following through the budget as we get to that point? So the governor's budget had a number of things that, that are good. You know, we could go farther, but there's 
you know, good good first step. So the first would be it, in, it has about $268.7 million in new money for K-12 overall. That includes a 2% raise in teacher salaries. It includes more money for the at-risk add-on, supplemental lottery per pupil allocations. There is money to um, reduce the ratio of students to, to counselors. It, was there some to define the work of what counselors are also doing? I saw there. I saw one that that changes the name. Um, I think most of them are called guidance counselors, and it changes to counselors because counselors do more. I mean, when you think of a guidance counselor, you think you know, help me do my college applications uh-huh. and figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And they do so much more than that. And social workers. <laughs> yeah, um, and and they so so by changing the name, um, it it better reflects the what they do. Work. You know. So I don't know that it redefines what they do more so than just names them correctly. Correctly, <laughs> yeah. And then so outside of the governor's budget, you know, last year I had an amendment that that I'm probably going to put back in that lifts the cap on support personnel, and and that's everybody from bus drivers to nurses. We put that cap in to balance the budget in 2008, and and never lifted it and a lot of localities couldn't afford to, to backfill what what the state didn't fund and so I think there's there's also funding I, I can't remember the exact amount but there is some funding for school facilities and construction and um, those are the ones I'm remembering off the top of my head but if you are not on my email list, listeners, uh, <laughs> I do send an email out once a week during session. Uh, the, the next one will go out Monday. That sort of I had one that went out when the when the governor's budget went out, and it's on my website at jennifermcclellan.com. And the governor's budget, if you really want to read all that detail, <laughs> before you guys get your pages, fork yeah. in it and everything, yeah, yeah, uh, you'll see it. But um, so those are just a few of the the budget priorities that we have for for K twelve. So one of the things that I know has been talked about a lot is the uh, Supreme Court decision Wayfair versus South Dakota yeah, and how that would allow states to potentially collect sales tax on online realtor, online, it's not realtors. Retail. Retailers. Retailers. (laughs) Almost. Almost. There we are. Well done. Yes. Um, that have their headquarters out of state but are selling products here. Yes. So right now, as it stands, I believe there's legislation that says that if we start collecting on it, the mon- money automatically goes toward transportation well, infrastructure. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's a debate about that. So Oh, interesting. Yeah. So before that court case, the law was that states could not require online retailers to collect the, the, the sales and use tax. But you, the buyer, were supposed to pay it anyway. Now, how many of you do that? Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, how would I even know to do that? Like, where where would I pay that at? <laughs> right. Well, when you file your yeah, when you file your state tax return, one of the questions is like, did you buy anything online from Amazon? Y- yeah. Basically, like you're yeah. supposed to you're supposed to keep track of it and report it, but nobody does that. So, no. uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now, the bill that passed, the transportation bill, said. Uh, so, so let me back up. When when the transportation bill was passed. There was a bill in Congress that would have allowed states to require retailer to collect it. So the so the transportation bill said if the bill in Congress passes, then that money will go to transportation. Well, that congressional bill didn't pass. It was too specific. So it, 
Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so that's one of the debates. Although I think most people agree, like we can do whatever we want because you guys are like the legislative bodies. We're so, like legislative even <laughs> to change that, you all right. you need oh. is a majority vote. Exactly. Like. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, but I'm a nerd, so I had to spell that out. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That's, that's fascinating because I hadn't thought about that angle of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why it's important to read the bills. You know, don't just a good lesson is don't just rely on what people tell you it says, like read it. So but anyway, yeah, sorry. No, that's just I've been so curious about that. And thank you for clearing it up. That explains a lot. Mm -hmm. So speaking of um, dollars, some of our listeners wanted to ask you if you'd be willing to refuse campaign contributions from Dominion Resources, Dominion Energy, one of the biggest polluters in the Commonwealth, and also any other like regulated utilities, basically, but mainly Dominion is the one people I think have on their minds this year. And then of course, why or why not? Well, so, you know, there are a lot of people who have asked us to sign pledges to that effect. And, and I, I have just taken a policy of I don't sign pledges or say pledge not to do one thing or another, because once you do it on one issue, it, it, it sort of opens the door to a slippery slope of everybody wanting you to sign a pledge on everything. And you put yourself in a box where, you know, you might regret. And so regardless of the pros and cons of the particular pledge, I have just taken a position of I don't do pledges. I am I am very cognizant that there is a, a, a lot of distrust of, of money in politics. And it's frankly a necessary evil. Um, and, to, and when you start drawing the line from, you know, what I would prefer is let's just say no one can take it. Rather than having, you know, these people can take it, these people, these people will take it, these people won't, and it sort of sets up inequity um, between candidates, I would rather just just say nobody can take it. I think that's a much cleaner approach. I and think that was something that uh, Delegate Bagby with yeah. the Black Caucus was speaking on specifically was saying we need to do reform of campaign contributions because not if it's not one ca- corporation, it's another. Yeah, and today it's Dominion, but tomorrow it could be somebody else, and it's. You know, I think we just need to take a look at what is the role of money in in the political system. I think the internet in particular, and and we saw this with the Obama campaign, and we definitely saw it in 2016, and we saw it even more last year, is the, the influence of big money contributions is dwindling because of the ability to pull smaller contributions. So I'll, you know, I would much rather focus my time on on individual contributions because when individuals contribute, they're more likely to vote for you mm-hmm. and they're more likely to be invested in you and and you're more connected to them. So that is where I focus my energy is I want I want individuals to invest in my vision in representing them. Because at the end of the day, Dominion doesn't vote for me, but, the, but my individual constituents who donate to me or who don't donate to me, they vote for me. And a vote is much more valuable to me as a candidate than a contribution. And so like with that, I think one the place that people also probably get to of like going after these individual companies is saying sometimes it wouldn't be so frustrating or difficult if there wasn't favorable policies being passed that made it right. feel like people are getting preferential treatment. Right. And with things that are going on with Dominion right now, and I believe you mentioned you're on the conservation committee coming back up. I don't know if there's like a tie in with all the things that are going on or if there's some insight you can give on maybe some current policies and legislation for people to follow just to. Yeah. Well, first, first let me just say, you know, I was one of the people who voted against the the big bill last year, the sort of re, I don't know what we call it, everybody called it the Dominion Bill, but it was um, the bill to put the 
to lift the rate freeze and do some other stuff. I voted against it. And I voted against it because I, I was like, look, I can't look my constituents in the eye and say this is better than status quo. So so that was the big fight last year. This year, I think the big issue is coal ash mm-hmm. and the removal of coal ash. And, and there are a couple of bills, and I see the governor is supporting requiring Dominion to remove the coal ash from the pond, their coal ash ponds. And, and I definitely support that. I have a um, solar freedom bill that I haven't gotten the draft back, so I can't tell you all of what's in it. But but the bottom line is this bill is going to remove some of the significant barriers to using solar energy in Virginia, particularly for individuals. My best friend who moved back to Virginia from Massachusetts, and she was like, it was super easy in Massachusetts to, if you built a house, have your house be 100% solar. She tried to do that here, and she was like, the laws are just insane. And so this bill will remove some of those barriers. There'll probably be some other solar or renewable energy bills. I think Sam Russell has one that would prohibit any new... Um, fossil fuel energy plants, um, so like a new coal burning, a new natural gas burning. Again, the deadline for filing pre-filed bills was 9 a.m. this morning. So as we speak, Legislative Services is, is putting them out on on the website. But those are those are some of the ones I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, I don't have the bill number yet, but it's the Solar Freedom Act because <laughs> we like to give our bills cool names cool names yeah <laughs> well you know you say freedom and everybody has to jump on freedom's good yeah so something it's kind of tying into dominion and everything that's going on specific to richmond with the current redevelopment plans that are going on something people have been asking is really how do legislators view sometimes things where you have a city in this case that's advocating for education funding and then this dichotomy where at the same time there's a shiny project is there any perspective that you can give about how you guys kind of evaluate what to listen to or how those outside noise things impact policy? That's a really good question. Like maybe we're just shady about it. No. Oh, I know, right? <laughs> I know, right? No. So, well, I'm struggling because there are a couple of ways I can't I can answer that. So it depends on if it's a project that requires state action which depending on what happens with the Coliseum proposal may or may not. My view, and I, I may be unique to that, I don't know, but unless I have a direct decision-making authority, I don't like to publicly weigh in on what another government entity is doing because I don't think that's my role. So if it doesn't require state action, I'm just like a regular citizen. And But sometimes if a state senator sort of says something where they don't have authority, it, you unintentionally put your, th- your thumb on the scale. And I don't think that's my job. And so I kind of just pay attention to what's going on and I'll, and I'll have an opinion, but kind of keep it to myself. Now, if there is a requirement for state action, then I've got to look at not, first, I've got to, I've got to balance a number of things. What my constituents want, and I'll spend a lot of time sort of asking them, what are your thoughts on this? But you really got to look at what what are you trying to do? Is this the city's landlocked? The city is 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 hampered in revenue sources to meet all of the city's needs, whether it's education or infrastructure or whatever. They need money. You've got to ask yourself as a state official, you know, is it my job to figure out what source of revenue you should be going after or is that your job? And I will defer, you know, if the city asks for legislation, then I will balance what the city officials want with what 
the community wants and and sort of make my decision based on if the city government wants it, but a majority of the city residents don't, I got to listen to the residents. But, you know, sometimes the city government knows something that the residents and I don't. And so it's sort of a, I'm a, right now I'm in an information gathering mode and and I haven't seen a bill yet, but I heard one might be coming. But the General Assembly, when you have legislation coming from a local government in general, the General Assembly tends to say, have you done all your homework, city, before coming to us? And if you haven't, then you might be a little bit premature. At the same time, if an individual comes to us and says, you ought to give the city the authority to do X, Y, Z, and the city hasn't asked for it, you're premature. So I know that's a long answer, but it's sort of a, I really struggle with, I was elected to state government and it is not my job to second guess local government, but local government has to be a little bit unified when they come ask us for something. So for me right now, again, like the mayor is, has his view. I don't know what council's view is. So again, we prefer, cause I, I, as a city representative, would have to sell this to, you know, like every town everybody hall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As soon as you have to weigh in on it policy-wise, like every town hall, it's coming up. Yeah, no, no, no. What, right. I mean, what I mean is, is if there's legislation to give the city the authority to do something, there are only five of us that represent the city. We've got to sell it to 135 other people. Mm-hmm. And if the city's not unified, that makes our job to sell it even harder. And it makes it hard for us to get behind it because it's like, y'all, y'all aren't unified. Right. Which I think that's such a thing as like just context of history. I think that's something that's so important for for General Assembly members to be hypersensitive to because with the interstate in Richmond specifically, there were two referendums that Richmond City voters voted down to not have the interstate take out that part of area. And then ultimately it's like, well, city council says, let's talk to the General Assembly about different authorities. You have a regional authority board. So I think it's really important to recognize the power and the fact that we have representatives today that are looking at it saying, well, if the city government's saying one thing and the people are saying something completely different, yeah, we should look at this. We need to look more into it and figure out what the difference that is. Well, and from and again, go so going back to for me, whenever I vote on anything, I ask myself a couple questions. First, is this better in status quo? What is the problem you're trying to solve? Is this way of solving it going to have unintended consequences? Are they good or bad? Who pays for it and how? If I can't answer all of those questions and stand up on the floor and say, here's the answer to all those questions, if there is any doubt, Mm. I'm voting no. Doesn't matter what it is. I'm not there. And I think it's premature for me to get there on the information that I have now for anything that would come to me to the General Assembly related to that project. And I'm not, you know, I'm still not sure we're going to get a bill. Well, and so speaking of, um, this is kind of a nice tie-in when we talk about access to local elected officials. Um, how Can you clarify how listeners can get to you specifically, but also maybe some tips on how to communicate with the General Assembly and start to get involved at that level? Because it's kind of big. Yeah, it is. <laughs> so the first days where I'm like, oh, I'm not getting another one. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So the first step is um, assuming I represent you, and I'll come back to that in a minute. So my website is um, www.jennifermcclellan.com, and all my contact information is there. My office number is uh, 
698-7509. I don't call myself. <laughs> 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 but it's it's easy to remember because for all of the senators, it's 698-75 and then their district number. Okay. Um, and in the House, it's 698-11 and their district number. Email is district09 at senate.virginia.gov. I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Jen, two N's, McClellan, VA. Um, and then I don't, my Facebook got changed. I think it's. You can just search your name in Facebook. Yeah. I've done it before. Okay, so. yeah. <laughs> I don't look for myself. This is Lemon. You mind if I Google myself in your office? Sure, Tracy. Can I use your computer? How else are you going to do it? So I'm on all of that. And the one thing I would say is particularly during session, I am a lot harder to get to mainly because I'm just I'm sitting in a committee meeting or on the floor. But my my staff, so my chief of staff is Abby Phillips. My outreach director is Nigus Debebe. And when I just hired starting Monday um, a second legislative assistant, uh, Nicole Haynes, and they can be reached at all of those those same if you talk to one of them, it's just as good as talking to me because they keep me regularly informed on on what we hear from constituents. If you don't know if I'm your member, you can go to virginiageneralassembly.gov and at the top, there's a button that says, uh, who is my legislator? I think you can just Google who is my legislator, Virginia, to take you there too. Yep. And, and you can put in your address and it'll tell you who your member of Congress, your state delegate, and your senator are. Who it'll, your peeps are. Yes. And it'll give you our official contact information. So it's, so it's easy to find us. Tracking. How do we get you to listen? <laughs> <laughs> send cookies huh. with your message. No, you don't need to send cookies. No, I listen, I listen, to, I listen to everybody. You unless do. you yell you at do. me. And then I'm less likely to listen. So moment. civil discourse is where <laughs> yeah, you're at. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're actually very responsive on Twitter. It's really? And yeah, you are very responsive. Thank you. Always have been. As usual, it's an election year. Yes. So you'll be up for election this November. I will. Um, as far as I know, you don't have a challenger currently? As far as I know, I don't. <laughs> still in signature phase, though. So. Still in signature phase. Oh, yeah, yes. still in signature oh, yeah, phase, but... Right. If you don't have a challenger, though, and it seems kind of like a sure thing to people, how do you encourage your constituents to get out and vote anyway? Don't take anything for granted. I mean, there's write-ins. And the entire House and Senate are up, so there will be um, House races as well. Those of you who live in Henrico County um, and I think Charles City have um, local races. I think part of it is just get in the habit of voting. You know, if you don't vote, if you get out of the habit of voting, you know, once— it's easy to get out of it again and again, and eventually they take your name off the rolls <laughs> um, if you're inactive. So, you know, you don't want a whole bunch of people to decide to go right in Donald Duck and then I lose. Like, that'd be terrible. But Yeah. So why should people vote for you? Why, why are you the best senator that I could possibly have? <laughs> I'm super responsive. So I, I believe that government is a, a, a important force for change that can be used to solve people's problems. And I have enjoyed solving my constituents' problems, whether it's helping them navigate an issue with a state agency or taking an issue that they found and, and doing legislation. Virginia, Richmond, we have a lot of problems. Um, we have a lot going for us, but there's a lot of work to be done to get our education system to the sort of high-quality um, free public system that we promise everybody, making sure that, that Virginia 
as a whole in the Richmond region in particular are, are safe, quality places to live, work, and raise a family. There's a lot of work to be done. And I will always listen. I will always do what I can to solve a problem. And I take very seriously that we are a government by, of, and for the people. So government is only as good as the people who choose to participate. Message! So that's why I chose to participate, but it is also why I take very seriously my job in educating my constituents on what I'm doing, what their government is doing, and encouraging them to make their voice heard. Because if, if, if your voice is not heard, I'm not doing my job, and I can't do my best job to solve your problems. That's why I hope you vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> And so do you have any, since today is the first day of session, hooray, Yay. do you have any um, like parting thoughts for people of things that you want to highlight as we go into session? So just just pay attention um, to what we're doing. The floor and committees are all live streamed on our website. I will do my part to, to live tweet or, or push out information on what we're doing. Please let me know. What you, th- what you think, there are a lot of issues we didn't talk about, everything from gambling to making the earned income tax credit refundable. So, so if there's an issue you care about, the best way to get, a, get information to me during session is email because it's just, there's a lot of incoming, but we, we count all the emails and read them and sort of make sure we know what people feel. So make your voice heard, make your voice heard, make your voice heard, and come visit. I know it's hard during the workday. Parking is not great. (laughs) But if you're in the Pocahontas building or in the Capitol, then stop by. I'm on the fifth floor. I think I'm 519. And if I'm not there, Abby, Nicole, and the guest will will treat you right. And one question I know... um, People, if they decide to come to one of the actual sessions, they can also let their delegate or senator know, yeah. and they can be recognized as a group or an organization, which sometimes helps yes. as far as people knowing who's in the room. Yes. How do people do that? If you're coming, if you if you call or email my office or in the Senate, if you just tell the clerk's office you're there, they usually get us a message to, to introduce you on the, on the floor. Sometimes something will mysteriously appear on my desk, so they're really good about that. But if you just let us know you're coming... My office can help reserve rooms. There aren't as many in the Pocahontas building, but we can really be a resource to help you all navigate the General Assembly in any way. Awesome. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That's one thing, all the feedback I've heard from people about you specifically as a delegate before and then also a senator is that you're somebody that it wants to talk through an issue and understand everything there is to know. (laughs) And then it's never just like an upfront no, it's okay, but there might be a better way. Yeah. And so I think people really appreciate, so I want to say thank you, because I know I do, of the representation where people are accessible to a point of, it's not intimidating to call you up. It's not intimidating oh. to be like, mm-hmm. hey, this might be a bad idea, but. <laughs> you're gonna oh, I have feedback. bad ideas, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I appreciate that you try to help people advocate and morph our regular ideas into policy ideas. Thank yeah. you. Yes. Thank you. We'll keep them coming. And thank you all for what you do. I actually, I do read your live tweets of, of city council meetings. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, yeah, sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, I'll, I'll read them. Well, it's good to know you're staying informed, too. Uh, yes. yes. The city around you. Yes. Well, thank you so much, State Senator Jennifer McClellan, for yeah. joining us today and uh, giving us kind of an overview about the 2019 General Assembly session. Yes. It's about to start. Yep. Thank you, guys. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? 
RVA Dirt is pleased to announce that we will be hosting original Richmond Today coverage of the General Assembly by Brandon Jarvis on our website. Starting today, you can get all your GA Dirt at rvadirt.com. Make sure to hit us up across all social media at RVA Dirt. So we're now in 2019, you guys. Still dealing with some of 2018's problems, but we're making it. Flint still has dirty water. RPS is still not fully funded, and Richmond is still most certainly racist, but we're working on it. My Oh, the tunnel of hope through the mountain of this